0: It was T.S. Eliot's first published poem. Written when he was only in his early 20s, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock rode the crest of the wave of literary modernism, predated World War I, and presaged an age of indecision and anxiety. The poem is the dramatic interior monologue of the title character, a middle-aged man whose passivity and ambivalence are threaded with artistic illusions, epigrammatic observations, and meditations on the nature of time, the fraudulence of relationships, and the risks of eating a peach. Should Proofrock dare disturb the universe? Should we? Today, we're discussing T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. This is Aaron Olanek.
1: And this is Wes Alwyn.
0: And you're listening to Subtext.
1: So before we begin, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partially Examined Life, we won't always be here and not all episodes of Subtext will appear here. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice, either by going to subtextpodcast.com slash subscribe or by searching for us within the app itself.
0: So Wes, for the longest time, I called this poem, The Love Song of Alfred J. Prufrock. (laughs) In fact, up until like a week ago, did I finally train myself out of it. And I I don't know why, but I have, I always had such trouble with this title. And I think in hindsight, or maybe just sitting and, and thinking through the title and the awkwardness of that a little bit, it seems like maybe that's the reaction that I'm supposed to have. The, the inability to really know this guy's name or rather to trip over the awkwardness of his name maybe but i was calling it the wrong thing for a really long time and i i sometimes do that thing where i will call it the wrong thing and people will correct me and i'll ignore them and just persist so
1: <laughs> yeah it's funny you say that i i have always had the same problem in fact i tweeted about this yesterday making a joke about how oh, you did <laughs> It was originally called The Love Song of J. Alfred Friendzone. <laughs> but Elliot thought it would be too obvious. Yeah, I don't know if that joke really worked. But I, uh, yeah, I have to like look up when I tweeted that I actually had to look up the name again. I have to do it every time. I have to look up the name to verify whether the J goes in the middle or or, or up front. It's been that way since I first read the poem, which I probably read in high school. Wow. Why is it so hard to remember the order?
0: I think Alfred J. Proofrock has a little bit more music to it, if you can argue that. But having that one initial right up front kind of stops you dead.
1: For some reason, he goes by his middle name, mm-hmm. right? Alfred, which is you know already it's not the most fortunate name. <laughs> Sorry if there are any Alfreds <laughs> listening to this. You know, and then it's a nerdy. It's a, there's a nerdy effect to it, I think. And then and then even the last name, it's goofy or whatever you want to call it. I think proof rock was some sort of company.
0: Oh, I know what you're talking about
1: growing up or something. He, I don't think he said this. I think he just says it's made up.
0: He said he, he wasn't consciously thinking of that, but he must have picked up on that. He admitted it. He might've been influenced by seeing that and having it roll around in the back of his mind.
1: Yeah. This is when he was back in, uh, Missouri St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> he, he, his family is from new England, but they ended up in St. Louis. His father had like a, Brick Company or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And his, his mom was a teacher and also a poet. But yeah, I mean, apparently St. Louis in various ways was was v- very influential on, on Eliot. But yeah, this title in particular seems to have come from the name of another another company. It's a kind of, I don't know if the word, if arresting is the word for the title. It's a very memorable title. It's a good poem to, you know, if you're going to make yourself famous <laughs> at an early age It's a good title to have. And this poem, I think he wrote it when he was 23, right?
0: Yeah. 22. Well, between 21 and 23 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which is interesting because it sounds like it's about a middle-aged guy. Right. But he wrote this, I think, while he was in grad school in philosophy at Harvard. Or or maybe he was on a year abroad in France. I I, I think he did a year abroad in France. And he became friends with Ezra Pound. He became a big champion of his poetry and... Uh, ultimately, even though he finished his dissertation on on idealism, on this English guy Bradley, who I think he directly studied under as well, he ended up not going back for the oral examination or whatever it was that would have ended up allowing him to complete his doctorate and become a professor. He was off to the races with poetry and left that to the side. But yeah, so this poem made a a really big splash. I think Ezra Pound was excited by it because of its, you know, it, it it was considered avant-garde in its time. You know, it's sort of a the, the quintessential modernist poem, right? It's the kind of very near the beginning of a of a movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It received a lot of resistance. There's an earlier early review in which the the guy calls him a drunken helot. <laughs> so this guy Arthur Waugh in Quarterly Review wrote something called The New Poetry. This review starts off, Cleverness is indeed the pitfall of The New Poetry. (laughs) There's no question about the ingenuity with which its varying moods are exploited, its elaborate symbolism evolved, and its sudden disconcerting effects exploded upon the imagination. Mm, I'm not sure if I like that image. (laughs) Swift, brilliant images break into the field of vision, scatter like rockets, and leave a trail of flying fire behind. But the general impression is momentary. There are moods and emotions, but no steady current of ideas behind them. Further, in their determination to surprise and even to puzzle at all costs, these young poets are continually forgetting that the first essence of poetry is beauty. And he compares it to cubism, and the reader will not have penetrated far before he finds himself in the very stronghold of literary rebellion, if not of anarchy. Ah. And then later on, after quoting something else, so this poem appeared in 1917, I think, in a little book of poems called Prufrock and Other Observations, which, as, as Rapound helped get published. So after quoting from Prufrock, he says, Here surely is the reduction to absurdity of that school of literary license which, beginning with the declaration, I knew my father well and he was a fool, naturally proceeds to the convenient assumption that everything which seemed wise and true to the father must inevitably be false and foolish to the son. Yet, if the fruits of emancipation are to be recognized in the unmetrical, incoherent banalities of these literary cubists, the state of poetry is indeed threatened with anarchy, which will end in something worse even than red ruin and the breaking up of laws, quote A hint of warning may not be altogether out of place. It was a classic custom in the family hall when the feast was at its height to display a drunken slave among the sons of the household, at the end that they being ashamed at the ignominious folly of his gesticulations might determine never to be tempted into such a pitiable condition themselves. The custom had its advantages for the wisdom of the younger generation was found to be fostered more surely by a single example than by a word of homily and precept. And then Ezra Pound wrote a response to this called drunken helots and Mr. Elliot. So I don't <laughs> think, I don't think the reviewer use the word helot, but I think after Ezra Pound's extremely feisty <laughs> response and ridicule of this guy and, and I think everyone assumed that the reviewer used the word Helot and and so that mm-hmm. kind of became a point of amusement among other reviewers who were who were defending Eliot.
0: I think that you said it was published in, in 1917 in a book and it was but it was first published in 19 in I think June of 1915 in, in poetry magazine right. Well, actually, no. I think Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man came out in 1914, maybe? I thought it was also 1915. Um, And then Pound did have that book of imagist poems that came in, I think, 1912. But Prufrock was certainly on the crest of the wave. I I find that review to be really interesting and kind of true in a way. I mean, not not in any way having to do with Eliot. (laughs) What
1: true in a way, but not in any true way. <laughs> but not in any true,
0: yeah. That's <laughs> like the the Parks and Rec quote with Patricia Clarkson playing Tammy One, where she's like, "In a way, yes, but in another <laughs> truer way, no." <laughs> yeah. But anyway, as you know, I'm I'm an art history buff, and um, I certainly think that Cubism and Modernism are inextricably linked. But I think that the reviewer is right when he says that for poetry, this is moving down a really destructive path. Cubism set art history on a path that ends in basically in complete and total self-destruction like if you eliminate everything one by one then in the end you'll be left with nothing and then you have to build from the rubble of that and i think that poetry kind of i don't i don't want to speak too grandly here but uh, you know poetry kind of escaped that fate because eventually it it swung back around into confessionalism and i think confessionalism within that are the seeds of an even greater and more profound demise than than was ever in modernism. But I think he does, he does sort of back his way into an interesting point about these destructive movements in art, or like essentialist movements, where you go down to the bare bones, and then when you're done stripping everything away, there's nothing left. But it's certainly not true when it comes to Eliot that, and it's kind of funny that that he thinks that Eliot is not, what he called, reverent enough of his forebears, considering the fact that it begins with <laughs> you know, it begins with Dante. Right. And um, <laughs> and is littered with his reverence for his forebears. And also right. it's, and, and it's
1: something very important to Elliot and Elliot wrote about that, you know, right, right. relationship.
0: And-, and I hope that we'll cover tradition and the individual talent at some point. That yeah, really I, I
1: read that as part of my prep for this. But yeah, we should do. That oh, really? At some point. Yeah.
0: Oh, I haven't reread yeah. that since college, but I remember loving it.
1: Yeah. He talks about the importance of seeing a, con- you know, the importance of influence and thinking of a contemporary poem as sort of part of this larger whole that is poetry. So, yeah, the guy that reviewer doesn't is not astute enough to get that, that despite the fact that Eliot is innovative, and and more fragmented in the way that he writes than people are used to. It's not simply an abandonment of tradition.
0: Yeah, no, and, and not to give this this idiot too much credence, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm simply saying that in a, uh, you know, that I think modernism actually has a lot more of the tradition within it. Now, now we have, I think, later movements after modernism uh, started to abandon that tradition more and more. But at least when it comes to art history, he was kind of right, just because in the 70s, you have this kind of Nadir of like after abstract expressionism, where do you go? Anyway, there there is a certain cul-de-sac quality in a lot of elements of 20th century art, but not not in Eliot. I, I'd say Eliot is like the 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 stay against that.
1: Interesting. Well, I think Ezra Pound overhyped the book. What? In all honesty, the Love Song of J Alfred Prufrock is one of my favorite poems, and I think it's a great poem. Reading the whole book in preparation for this, is not it's not long.
0: Hmm. Portrait of a Lady is Portrait that Portrait of a
1: Lady is great. Well, the Boston Evening Transcript uh, is another brief little kind of playful poem that that doesn't mark someone as being a a great poet, in my opinion. So there are things of varying quality, I think, in that volume. But regardless, you know, take my judgments with a grain of salt, obviously, (laughs) but I can say as far as my taste goes, my love of proof rock does not extend to thus far to most of of the other stuff I've read. So I also read the reread the wasteland in preparation for this. And I remember having to read that in high school and having a friend of mine just bitch and moan constantly about the wasteland. And it was just almost (laughs) a recurring, (laughs) you know, object of contempt. Mm -hmm. So what I can say now is I'm not advanced enough to, (laughs) to fully appreciate probably some of this Proof rock, I you know, like I said, I count it among my favorites. I think it's exceptional. And I think when I say Pound was overhyping, I was thinking of the volume in, in general. And mm-hmm. Eliot is just starting out, right? Ezra Pound's like, "Oh, I'm going to make you famous. You're you're the greatest." I, I don't think there's enough evidence at this point. Pound is really really it's a leap of faith in some ways for Pound. You know, he sees the he sees the greatness in, in some of these poems.
0: Sure. Well, I think Pound is kind of a serial overhyper. I mean, Eliot yeah. fascism. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, but we kind of got into this because of the weird title
0: and the juxtaposition of the idea of a love song with this this guy who sounds like a I don't know I th- I think he would make a great uh, sitcom character on uh, like The Big Bang Theory or something something
1: like uh, that. Really? Why is that?
0: <laughs> I don't know. He just sounds like his name. It just sounds like a guy with a pocket protector.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But then we have the the excerpt from Inferno.
1: Yeah, so shall we just go through? We'll, we'll read a stanza and then comment. And we, we may sure. run out, out of time to do all of that, but that's started out. Sure. I've been looking forward to hearing you read the, read the Italian here.
0: Oh, no. Are you serious? Yeah.
1: You, <laughs> you, it's in Italian. How are you going to uh, avoid reading the Italian? Well, because I was and just going to read then a then translation. I, have, I
0: didn't practice. All right. All right. Si io credesse che mia riposta fosse a persona che mai tornasse al mondo, fiamma staria senza più ma giama di questo fondo vivo alcun, si il vero, senza terma di infamia ti rispondo. So, the translation that I have, which I got off the internet somewhere, If I but thought that my response were made to one perhaps returning to the world, this tongue of flame would cease to flicker. But since, up from these depths, no one has yet returned alive, if what I hear is true, I answer without fear of being shamed.
1: And so that guy is Guido de Montefeltro, Mm. the name. Great guy. Speaking of weird names, probably not weird back then, but maybe not weird. (laughs) Back
0: then then when everyone had those weird Italian names.
1: Yeah. I don't know what that was. Thank God that's (laughs) (laughs) passed. But yeah. So Dante, at this point is in the, this is from Dante's Inferno. At this point, he's in the eighth circle of hell for People who are being punished for simple fraud, fraud without malicious intent, which that sort of fraud is meant for the ninth circle. This includes counterfeiters, hypocrites, grafters, seducers, and this guy Guido. He's made entirely of flame. So when he talks about this tongue of flame would cease to flicker, he's not being metaphorical there. His, his tongue really is made of fire. So Guido's rhyme was to advise Pope Boniface to basically betray a certain family to tell them that they were getting amnesty and to then to renege on the promise. And Guido basically has Boniface agree to absolve him of the sin in advance. So to get over his reluctance for doing that, which I think is significant. So I think our task here is to think about how how is this relevant? How is fraud? And um, in particular, this sort of fraudulent betrayal of the colonna family in which there's preemptive absolution how is that going to be relevant to the rest of the poem
0: yeah there's a kind of a preemptive absolution within the the telling of this tale too or in other words there's a there's a kind of like a short circuiting because guido is only telling dante this with the understanding that dante can't tell anyone else so he's he's sort of unburdening himself with the expectation that if he tells the truth about this or if he tells his tale dante won't be able to tell it to anyone else because no one's ever made it out of hell alive. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, uh, an, again, that kind of confessional quality, which is conditional <laughs> on the assumption that Dante will not make it out.
1: You know, there's a nice irony to this epigraph, right? Because mm-hmm. it's understandable that Guido might think, okay, no one's returned from hell. I'm safe telling this story and not, you know, I'm not going to ruin my reputation up on earth by telling it. Cause Dante is never going to get back. But in this case, Eliot is in the position of Guido, and we are in the position of Dante. And, and Eliot is publishing this poem, and there's no question, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> that this publication is not a private communication to some listener who's going to keep his confidence, but that it's a potentially reputation ruining event, and in particular, an admission of some sort of fraud.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, but I think also that Eliot is Dante and Guido is Prufrock. So there's that, is that what you said?
1: Yeah, no, I didn't, but I think you're right. Yeah, because it can be read in several different ways, yeah.
0: Right. So there's that, you know, hiding behind dramatic monologue also, which is interesting. So there's this idea that Eliot is betraying uh, Prufrock. I see. So of course, Prufrock is his own invention, but it's allowing him to the persona, which is something, of course, pound It was really into the idea of persona. And and I I guess Elliot is here. Like this, this poem just makes me think of Browning. The idea of the dramatic monologue can give you that kind of ironic distance from whoever you're writing about, even as you're revealing personal things about yourself, you can say that it's through the prism of this character and in a way betraying the character.
1: Now, this is, of course, is a much better reading than the one I just gave. (laughs) This makes, makes much more sense. Yes. To think of Elliot as, as Dante and uh, in this case, betraying proof rock which which in a way you know you can read as a self-betrayal as well if you'd like but yeah that should be the primary reading
0: and guido is giving a kind of um you know the tongue of flame that's got to be the whole like the evil holy spirit right <laughs> so there's a there's a divine inspiration well an inverted divine maybe demonic inspiration that hovers over the the whole painting uh, the whole yeah painting sure the whole poem
1: so i just wanted to give a little foreshadowing of what I think the fraud might, and the preemptive absolution for it, what that might be, which is that it might have something to do with, there's a a lot in this poem about social forms, which are associated with these women in their rooms having polite conversation and deception that happens in our day-to-day social interactions. One might think of those things as fraudulent and then the concept of preemptive absolution is that that's just what it means to be a nice person so to lie to people to say or essentially to conceal things from people for you know so that you don't hurt their feelings so you don't ruin the relationships there's a great deal of deception that goes on socially but it's kind of a noble lie situation it's for a better end and that might be the preemptive absolution part of it so that's a suggestion which i'm not sure that will bear out but that was my first impression
0: i like that mm. yeah yeah Okay, so uh, I'll read the first stanza. Imagine that I have the voice of a middle-aged man. Or maybe I already do. <laughs> okay. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights and one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question oh do not ask what is it let us go and make our visit
1: so famously the first question is wh- who is the you that he's addressing in this poem is it a uh, is it himself is it the reader could we think of this as prufrock addressing eliot his his dante even given the the way things begin You know, my first reaction to this was that what you get from the first two lines, it sounds to me like the beginning of a, you know, it's called a love poem. And there's a kind of romantic feel to the first stanza, even after it takes a left turn and goes dark. Really, it's only the first two lines where you (laughs) could maintain the illusion. It always starts out for me feeling like he's talking to a woman and that this is a night out, this is a date and then later on you you're left to wonder could this be a male companion as eliot later on suggested when he was asked is it proof speaking to himself and of course it can be all these things at once
0: to bolster your point of of him speaking to a female companion the romance of this first stanza, I think, comes from the the fact that it actually begins with a decisive action, or that maybe the, just the suggestion of a decisive action, right? Like, let's go, let's yeah, do something. Yeah,
1: we, we get the imperative mood here.
0: Right, and it, this is the only stanza, I think, that begins that way. That, I think, contributes to the romantic tone. Of course, it's ironic because it's going to be undermined by the rest of the poem Mm -hmm. and whether or not one should do anything. And the love song itself, the fact that this poem exists at all is, again, a kind of a, a decisive act, though it's going to later be regretted if the epigraph is any indication. I agree with you that it seems like it's a woman, but then also I do kind of think to me, it's Proofrock talking to himself, I think. I, I mean, of course I, I agree that it could be many things and probably is many things, but in light of the rest of the poem, this first stanza I kind of read almost as like a self-help kind of pep talk, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like he's 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 ready to go out into the world and he has to bolster himself up a little bit and, in some sort of self-helpy kind of, kind of way. I guess this slightly prefigures, you know, Dale Carnegie, but that kind of idea, like, okay, Hey, let's go, let's do this and that's why he has all this enthusiasm up front or if not enthusiasm, then at least just the desire to do something which then peters out over the course of the poem.
1: Yeah, the way I, I like to think of this is is almost as a dreamlike situation where you it starts out it could start out as a female companion in the first two lines and then it takes a dark turn with the where the sky becomes the patient etherized upon a table, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he's wandering through, maybe it's a red light district, you know, a place where there's, it sounds like, people with prostitutes, restless nights in one-night cheap hotels. He could be alone in that situation, talking to himself. He could be with a male companion at that point. Ultimately, of course, he's. it, it, it sounds much more as the poem progresses, like he's just by himself. The companion disappears or it's absorbed and it, goes inside him, or he's abandoned in some sense. I like the idea of thinking of, you know, because it's been set up with the epigraph from Dante, I like of thinking of the first two lines as in some way inspired by that, right? So mm. that, it, it does sound like Rock is the Virgil here, he is the guide, in some sense, at first. But um, that quickly evolves into to something else.
0: Yeah, and there is, um, because of this Seedy quality, too. It does seem like Prufrock, whether he's with someone or alone, his, we're meant to feel that his mind is tending in a certain direction, even though the third line, the punchline of the first two, mm-hmm. like a patient etherized upon a table, is the inversion, maybe, of a romantic evening with this idea of the loss of of consciousness and feeling, going directly to sleep or being put to sleep rather than having a romantic time.
1: And I think this is one of the greatest metaphors Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the English language. Yeah, part of what's really interesting here is this idea of the evening spread out against the sky, just a strange kind of doubling image. You know, is he referring to stars here? How is the evening exactly spread out against the sky? Is it the darkness of the night that spread out against the sky? Yeah, this patient etherized upon a table part is wonderful because it suggests that the evening far from being romantic is sick Mm -hmm. and has been made temporarily unconscious or even he'll mention Lazarus later on, right? The idea of someone coming back from the dead. Mm -hmm. And the closest thing we have to that is putting someone under anesthesia for surgery, putting someone, you know, very as close to death as you could possibly get and then reviving them. So here in the very beginning of the poem, we have this idea of sickness and someone being put under because of sickness and with the potential for revival but most urgent up front here is just the 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 idea that the evening quickly does not serve as any kind of romantic backdrop and now we have it what he's about to do if he's walking through a red light district it's almost like the evening is being anesthetized so that it is not going to be a witness to what's going on
0: yeah and then we have the half-deserted streets. I guess they're half-deserted because Proof Rock is there and whoever else he's with. <laughs> but after The Patient, this section from the half-deserted streets to Insidious Intent is also sort of deserted of, of people. Like we have all these images of emptiness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Streets are half-deserted. The muttering retreats of, of restless nights and one-night cheap hotels, but there's no one enjoying the, or rather not enjoying the restless night. And the restlessness here must be asexual. It must be a restlessness because of anxiety rather than because of the fact that it's being used for sex or one night stand or a prostitution or whatever the case may be. Am I right thinking that that's the restlessness?
1: What we seem to learn as the poem goes on is that he's on, the, on a way to see a woman who and they may not have been courting, or maybe she he's courting her, and she doesn't know that or and uh, he's either proposing marriage to her, he's making some sort of or maybe he's proposing that they become girlfriend and boyfriend, something like that. he's got something that he has to say to her that he's anxious about saying, and yet here he is taking a detour through a red light district, and I take the restless nights in one night cheap hotels as just people seeing prostitutes, so you're taking it as something else here.
0: Well, yeah, because the streets are like a tedious argument. The restlessness seems anxious to me. Also, because I know that this is, I mean, this is a Boston poem, right? So there's something obviously essentially puritanical mm. <laughs> about about the nature of this neighborhood. I don't think that Boston ever had a red light district. I mean, maybe I'm being naive here. But also the idea of the oyster shells, not the oysters. I mean, the, the typical aphrodisiac but the actual aphrodisiac part taken out of it the emptiness of that The mm. i don't know what you want to say about that the castration of that as it were the streets that are just like a tedious argument thinking about this poem i was walking around boston and those streets in in my neighborhood that loop back around on each other <laughs> so that you don't get anywhere yeah, it seems like the like the what should be an area of indulgence, a, a red light district, uh, you know, something like that is is actually it has all the sin or or excitement or whatever leached out of it, and what you have left with is just the empty shell, literally in this case, mm-hmm. of um, anxiety and not even doing anything. "Quote unquote fun in any of these environments. And, and also the lack of people that leads me to think that, but I could see it going the other way too.
1: Yeah. We should stay maybe agnostic between both of those readings. And mm-hmm. there's also a conflict in, in how we are supposed to conceive of him. One of the ideas I had is that this guy is middle-aged and the way he's, his interactions of with, with women have probably only been through seeing prostitutes. That's one possibility. Or he's virginal and he hasn't done that at all. And it's hard for me to say which. When I look at the tedious argument of insidious intent in the context of the rest of the poem, I wonder if he's thinking about reconciling his sexual history or sexuality in general with the more affectionate and the higher feelings involved in love and a declaration of love to Mm. a woman, something like that. -hmm. It's not entirely clear, so that's one possibility for this. The you know the tedious argument of insidious intent. He's worried about something. There's some sort of inner debate going on, which is now represented by the streets themselves. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then the question is, why is the intent of the argument insidious? And it makes me wonder if it involves sexual intent.
0: Right. And what the the question is is momentarily put aside, and then he actually goes to party though i know some people think that he's never actually in the party but i i think he is or you know party used loosely because then he's in the the house and the women
1: yeah so he's going to be famously indecisive and hesitant and hamlet-esque even though you know he'll will deny that comparison later on throughout the poem but in the first stanza right he gets up there's enough gumption to set things in motion to start this walk and to go actually make make the visit so
0: mm-hmm.
1: he's able to turn aside this the tedious arguments and this more theoretical frame of mind right so this do not ask what is it it almost sounds like it's it's a very philosophical approach to the problem right you, you become aristotle and you say what is this
0: <laughs>
1: there's a classic conflict there between being theoretical and being practical but, um, actually moving to action and ironically of course this whole poem is essentially an analysis it's, and it's an ad- addressing of the question what is it mm. so then we get to this next shall I just read the next two lines yeah. mm-hmm. in the room the women come and go talking of Michelangelo this was another butt of ridicule my this friends in high school part. I know
0: this is the Woody Allen movie part
1: <laughs> yeah I always, I always imagined him at this point peeking in the window
0: <laughs> at the women
1: in the room. When I was in high school, I'm like, why is this guy peeking in the room? You know, if this were a movie, this would be a nice dramatic, you know, you cut to the destination and, and the, um, in a way, the, the antagonists in their environment. And that's where he's headed. So at this point, I still think of him as outside wandering around. And then we, we just get a brief glimpse of where it is he's headed.
0: I think Michelangelo is a great, I mean, not only because women come and go and Michelangelo are just like a fantastic rhyme. And I like the fact that it's a refrain that recurs and it has a little kind of jazzy element to it. So it's, it's very, yeah, it's like a Woody Allen cocktail party, but also because Michelangelo himself is someone that I associate with violence, of course, but also just action and He's a great figure. So he's someone who maybe is makes proofrock feel inadequate or something like that. But he's also a guy who's associated with I don't know if virility is too strong of a word, but like, you know, violence and great action. And so they're talking about Michelangelo and proofrock seems small, maybe, by comparison to that.
1: Yeah. I think it's important that Michelangelo is an artist. And because we can we can also read this as a ultimately as we can always do the reading where we think of this as a reflection on art and what it means to be an artist. The surface content here is that this is kind of a characteristic of high society or polite society where people are engaged in probably a lot of small talk and meaningless chit chat. They're not doing anything deep or real. And yet they, you know, they sprinkle their conversation with these sorts of illusions because it's a mark of status and sophistication. So it's a way in which art is being made use of socially rather than engaged with at any um, substantive level.
0: Mm. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. Yeah, this is the fog-obsessed one. The fog is a cat. (laughs) Um.
1: Yeah. What we get now, so we get pollution. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I guess the yellow fog is the result of burning coal or fuel or something, and the, the yellow smoke. And then, of course, we get the soot falling on the back of this cat creature made of the fog. But the the gist of the stanza is something kind of warm and cozy and nice, right? This idea mm. of a cat curling up around the house, you know, that, that's sort of ev- evocative of a warm kind of homey place.
0: And I guess this gives credence to your your reading that he's still looking through the windows because maybe he's delaying by waxing poetic about the standing water and the the soot and everything and rather than because i always read this as being he's now immediately gone mentally outside the house in the streets again as soon as he arrives but i like the idea that he's looking in through the window and then and then kind of looks around him and as a way of delay engages in this kind of imaginative exercise of seeing the bad effects of urbanization as some cozy little cat that he'd like to stay and and pet rather than go inside the house
1: yeah. I mean, on, on my current reading of the poem, I didn't even think of, you know, that was when I was younger. I thought of him looking in the window, which is, it's still possible. Prufrock is, is peeping Tom. Mm. But I thought of this as just him making a transition from a red light district to another part of town in which, you know, there's so a nicer part of town in which, you know, his destination, the house. Or really what we're seeing is, you know, it doesn't matter where Proofrock is exactly. You know, he's imagining where it is he's going. So it's un- it's unclear. But I think the, you know, yeah, that's a good point you make about kind of negative products of urbanization serving the purpose of this kind of more cozy image. And I don't know exactly what to make of that since there seems to be a bit of a class element of this, these upper-class women doing upper-class things and talking about Michelangelo. You can think about the ways in which industry and the work of others is made to serve those purposes and kind of kept out of sight right mm-hmm. so in these chambers in these drawing rooms the, the women are kind of sheltered from this and it's the the labor of others in the end serves the purpose of creating that shelter of of creating this cozy protective cat i think we can also make a, a connection between the fog and and etherization oh sure and ultimately between that and some sort of dulling or obscuring effect of politesse and, and social forms. Um, but you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I thought a lot about that in reading this poem it, it seems as if this is where the fraudulence comes in again where it, that he's thinking about the essential hypocrisy of the way we engage with each other socially and he's worried about whether love is that way as well and whether love is inevitably a sort of fraudulence because it's um actually predicated on something sinful on lust and just a kind of fogging over or papering over of its essentially sinful nature that seems to be part of the conflict here hmm.
0: That's interesting.
1: And then more yeah. you know more generally, the society itself is right. The organizing force that builds society is something violent and exploitative. Societies come to be through a history of violence. They come together through warlords doing their thing and, and whatever peace we you know we enjoy within society, with the cat kind of wrapped around us, whatever or, or historically, if we live at a more peaceful moment, it's easy to forget about that That is the product of, a, um, of something more, more sinister that's evolved over time. And it's unclear how we could have ever gotten to where we are without that evolution. I bring that up just to, again, to highlight this conflict between the, the idea of what is social and peaceful and civilizationally advanced and, and talk of Michelangelo and art. With with some sort of seedy underbelly or a conflict between that and some kind of energizing, contradictory force to which one might reduce it.
0: It's funny that you should say that, because I did a little word association in my the notes in the margins. I wrote fog as cat fog settling around the house, like brain fog, house is brain compartmentalized, and then fog of war. (laughs) Yeah. So I think I kind of got there. Yeah, I have fog of war
1: in my notes as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, So it's funny that we both got to war somehow.
1: By the way, we should say that the musical Cats, right, was based on Elliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats.
0: Yeah, should we? Cats are
1: are a recurring theme, I think, Mm -hmm. in his... um, poetry they they, they appear in a, in a few different places so
0: well let's not throw that in his face it's uh <laughs> so if you love still this poem, make sure and- you go
1: out and see the re- most recent <laughs> movie production of cats because you'll 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 love it
0: <laughs> <laughs> should we i'll read the next
1: yeah sure
0: okay And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time. There will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate, time for you and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. You can almost hear the nervous... Finger tapping. I hear, I hear a finger tapping in this uh, stanza, the recurring, there will be time, there will be time, aside from uh, the obvious repetition of the word time is thematic.
1: Yeah. So we get an evocation of Ecclesiastes here, right? A time to be born and a time to yeah. die and and so on. And probably also to seduction comes, like poems like Marvel's to his coin mistress, had we but world enough in time, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So I think given the fact that this is a love song, we're meant to think of that. And, and it's an inversion of that, right? Because a seduction poem would, would say, look, you know, we're, we're, life is short and you're we're getting old. Beauty mm-hmm. fades. That's, let's get it on now, <laughs> sooner than later, <laughs> <laughs> before that happens. In this case, the idea is that there's plenty of time for indecision and for hesitation, which we can take to be meant ironically, but... What's also interesting here is that in a way, I think indecision does expand time in a way. What do you think of this whole time thing here?
0: I think he's playing with the idea of delay as creating meaning, like a false way of creating meaning. The idea of possibilities or endless possibilities seems to him to be something that that it's good to hold on to, which is a false idea, right? Because ultimately... All he has is, is, it's sort of like he's bought time in bulk at Costco, and now he has, <laughs> he has, um or he thinks that he has a lot of time, and that that in itself conveys meaning. Really, time is just at the service of actually performing an action and finding meaningful ways to spend one's time. In other words, he's divorcing time from the a way to spend that time. He's setting it aside. He's He's like putting it in a closet or something like that. And... Then maybe even sort of rubbing his hands in a way, I mean, not he's anxious, but, uh, but saying, oh, you know, look at all this time I have, it's fine. It's all going to be fine. Of course, there's a nervousness and an anxiety in that repetition.
1: It's, it's interesting to say there will be time if we're to infer that he's middle aged from his bald spot later on and to infer that he's sort of making a last ditch attempt at proposal, probably to someone who's much younger again we we get this kind of inverse of the seduction poem in which it's not her who's running out of time and so you know get with me because of that he's the one running out of time but the way he understands that it's as if he's reinterpreting a life of indecision as temporal expansiveness right generally we think i don't have time to do everything i want to do and so i better act quickly but if you've been inhibited from action all your life then in that domain of deliberation and tedious arguments of insidious intent it's as if there's something that is expansive about that in other words you know indecision eats time right but then it's as mm-hmm. if because it eats time it's it gives you all that time in some sense that's the ironic reversal. You know, you take something that seems to d- destroy our time as being the thing that actually gives it to us in the sense that we don't, it changes our standard of judgment, where if we don't, if we're comfortable with indecision and hesitation, then we're not hurrying ourselves up in order to act because our we, we leave action to the side. And then in that sense, by that standard of valuation, time looks more expansive. The other thing here with the reference to Ecclesiastes, there's a kind of elision between saying there is a time for everything, right? A time to be born, mm-hmm. a time to be die, everything in its place. And then this idea that there will be time. So the question is it's the way in which the question of appropriateness right, right. degrades into the idea that I can always wait. <laughs> right. There's always going to be time to to make a decision because I want to make sure everything is happening at the appropriate time. But of course, if you try to make sure everything happens at the appropriate time, you end up with a bald spot. It ends up being late.
0: Related to that point, I recently read, not not too recently actually, A.E. Stalling's translation of, of works and days, her new translation, which I is know. very good. I really recommend it. But it, it occurred to me that he sees it as the one who, from what I remember, he comes up with the idea of the five ages of man. Yep. And so I looked up on Wikipedia.
1: So we should say we're we're talking about the Hesiod reference here.
0: Yeah. Time for all the works and days of hands. Yep. And uh, of course the the whole poem is about the idea of toil and creating meaningful work and there's an almanac in there too. But in the little, forgive me that I'm reading from Wikipedia, but in the little Wikipedia description of the five ages, the current time of, at which Hesiod is writing is, or Hesiod, is uh, the Iron Age. And so Wikipedia says, Hesiod finds himself in the Iron Age. During this age, humans live in an existence of toil and misery. Children dishonor their parents, brother fights with brother, and the social contract between guest and host is forgotten. During mm. this age, might makes right, and bad men use lies to be thought good. At the height of this age, humans no longer feel shame or indignation at wrongdoing. Babies will be born with gray hair, and the gods will have completely forsaken humanity. There will be no help against evil. I read that, and I I was like, wow, you know, babies will be born with gray hair.
1: Yeah, that's, <laughs> this is a pr- that's proof extreme. rock.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, um, that's a good, huh, interesting. Babies will be born with bald spots. Yeah,
0: right, right. So it's funny too because it's. Hesiod thought that he was living in a, you know, a terrible time of his, you know, he he himself was living past the golden age in a, a depleted time, a time after which all the meaningful time had been spent or, some, or something like These that. dang
1: kids today. Right.
0: <laughs>
1: Didn't he know he lived in ancient times?
0: <laughs> I know. He should have appreciated it while he was there, while his village was getting pillaged or whatever. Right, right. And so the idea that modernism is, of course, playing with is this sort of post, you know, everything is post everything and a a sense of of depletion or exhaustion of the arts and um, a sense in which everything good has already happened. And so in a way, it's like, there is a lot of time when you're just thinking that, you're you're kind of playing with the leftovers of of all of the of all the great ages past because all the great things have already happened. You, mm. you know what I'm trying to say about that? I like.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very what I'm trying to get at. Yeah,
0: that's why I say that it's it's like Prufrock has all this time in book because he's like you know all you have left is time if you're in an age that's past the age of action and mm. excitement and gold and profundity and and all these things it's like Marvel and his mistress have died, right? And the urgency mm-hmm. is now gone. And you're, you're just playing with those ages past that Marvel was saying, you can't just linger by the Ganges and do whatever it is that you want to do. So now, now we're in that time. We're in the post time. That's great. <laughs> it leeches the urgency, but of, of course it's a form of, of self-deception, which compounds the deception that Proofrock tries to put on by preparing a face to meet the other faces.
1: Yeah, you, you have me thinking about how there will be Time is actually a, a, his strange way of saying that there already has been so much time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we can think of that in terms of Prufrock's life or in terms of history. And in particular, what that means for a contemporary artist. We can read Eliot as thinking about the relation between tradition and the present. And we know that's something, right? He thought a lot about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I was also going to say about the Works and Days reference. In Hesiod's poem, there's a lot of agricultural instruction mm-hmm. and there's advice on how to live. So thinking of the reference to Polonius later on in the poem where, where Prufrock is, says, I'm not a hamlet. I'm just this more cautious and practically minded person, maybe to the point of being a fool. So there's the kind of Polonian element to works and days. And it's an attempt to kind of impart the virtues of work, hard work. It's kind of a uh, homemaking (laughs) instruction manual if you think of animal animal husbandry and agriculture is involved in that. But part of the reason why he's talking about the ages of man is he's talking about why it is that work is necessary. And so this story is evocative of the fall in that way Mm. because it follows on Prometheus stealing Fire And giving it to humanity, basically the capacity for technological and intellectual advancement. Because I think in the golden age, right, we supposedly lived free from all toil and illness. Mm. And then Pandora's box contains the curses. And one of them is that we will have to work, which is sort of our fate after leaving Eden, right, is to have to toil. The idea is that to be expelled from Eden and to live in a time of toil is, there's some connection there to living in a time of indecision rather than living in a time of heroism, something like that.
0: I agree with you. I think that's a good observation. I I also think now this is even the time beyond the toil because now we have have too much, right? The dropping a question on your plate led me to think of the question of appetite, uh, which returns to that again and again. Like he's even... Later on, I don't want to jump the gun here, but later on he's even overfed and that kind of lulls him into not wanting to do anything. Like I looked up the term analysis paralysis, which, which I guess didn't, didn't even come uh, into existence until the seventies, mm. but he sort of presages that or the idea of choice overload is something I'm, I'm really interested in. So like choice overload, they did all these studies that found that in supermarkets, for instance. If you put out, say, one one product or two products, then people aren't going to be satisfied with not having much of a choice. But there's a point of diminishing returns where if you have too many choices, say, of toothpaste brands, then people are not going to know what to do and they're just going to walk away. They can't make mm-hmm. the choice because they're presented with too many. And it it just ends in indecision and then they don't buy what they have to buy. So there's actually an ideal number of choices to have. But that occurs in all elements of one's life. It's very difficult to make a choice. Like this is what people talk about with why people aren't getting married because of Tinder and the idea Mm -hmm. that there's always someone new out there. And it leads you to be so overwhelmed by the potential choices that you might make, that you can't function at all. And if you do make a choice and you've had too many choices to select from, then it increases your dissatisfaction with that choice. Mm. And so I was thinking about all this stuff just because I am kind of interested in that idea of choice overload because it's something that happens to me all the time. If I go Mm. into... a store, And I think there are too many options. I will invariably walk out with nothing, <laughs> mm. even if I really need something. And then I kind of think later on, like, why did I do that? You know, so I, and then I found out there's a reason for it. But that question of appetite or of of the idea that the toil has now produced so many options and so much excess, so much fruit of, of that labor that that's, I think, part of Prufrock's problem or the modern problem, which mm. is, you know, you can't choose anything because there are too many possibilities that other people's labor have opened up to us.
1: That's great. I like that. The after toil time, is that what you said?
0: <laughs> yeah, after toil.
1: <laughs> Post toil. Um, we should really
0: get our listeners to like, um, <laughs> write down all the phrases that we've come up with. Over the course <laughs> <that's> of- <laughs> <true>. <laughs> it's a sad list.
1: Yeah, that's really great. Because, and it, and again, it comes back to this idea that what weighs upon us is the accrual of time in the past and, and you know, history and a kind of an accumulation of history mm-hmm. and that goes for the arts, right? That goes for everything has been done. What do I do now? Or can I do anything that is original? It isn't the mere product that hasn't been done for before. Isn't just a product of influence of, you know, that is isn't entirely derivative. So there's the indecision predicated on that burden. And then there's the kind of, related in a decision that you've talked about where, you know, at some point so much work has been done that life, it creates so many options and making choices becomes so much more complicated. So Mm -hmm. I like this, you know, when he says there will be a time to murder and create, right? That sounds very heroic and very, yes, I'm a, uh, you know, there's some potentially at least a person of action. And it sounds to me again, like an adversion of, you know, the Ecclesiastes and Mm-hmm. A time to be born and then a time to die. you know, born becomes create, die becomes murder. But of course, in the end, you know, we end up anticlimatically with taking toast and tea, right? right <laughs> There's plenty right. of time to do all of this before the taking of toast and tea. Unfortunately, he's in the era of taking toast and tea. That's his age, not the era of murdering and creating necessarily.
0: It's a tribute to Eliot's genius then that this poem was even created, that he was even able to make the choices to lead to his illusions because of the, also the selection of having so many artists to choose from that he might allude to in the poem. Mm-hmm. Like the wasteland is just a, a monument to the triumph over choice overload, I guess. <laughs> right, um, <laughs> that's a good point.
1: You know, if you have enough footnotes, then right. <laughs> maybe you right. can overcome the accumulation of history and time and...
0: Right. Right. Well, and so then we go from toast and tea to the return of the refrain in the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo, which is great because Mm it recalls him to the present, but also to an artistic illusion, which contrasts with the toast and and tea. And like you say, the the heroic age.
1: It's what's talked about during Mm -hmm. toast and tea, right? Right. It's no longer what's done, but it's, it's, it's history and it's become an, an object of discussion and a, and a kind of vehicle for social interaction in the present. So it's suggestive of part of what leads to indecision and hesitation. In in a way, social life itself becomes a form of inaction or stasis. It just um, it kind of lives off of the past or off of, you know, in current times, off of, you know, the media environment, right? And it becomes easy to, to do that. Rather than to do anything to create or murder, whatever you want to do, whatever your thing is, you, uh, you talk about it or communicate your signal, your status through it.
0: So the next stands up. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is growing thin, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse.
1: So we find out he's middle-aged. It mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't have to be middle-aged. I mean, I wonder what Elliot was thinking of himself writing this in his early twenties, right? Did he feel old already? Was he explicitly thinking about what it might mean to be middle-aged? I mean, he he might have thought he was thinking about someone in his 30s, right? You could be balding in your 30s. It's the safest bet to assume it's middle-aged. And then in the end of the poem, of course, he's worried about getting old alone, Mm. the thinness of the hair.
0: Yeah, I like the fact that we have thin rhyming with thin (laughs) in this stanza. And prior stanzas, you have time rhyming with time. Mm. I think those are the two big perfect rhymes, perfect repetitions, thin and time.
1: There's a lot more rhyming in this than it, like I hadn't reflected on the amount of rhyming, you know what I mean? Like it's, mm-hmm. I, I thought of this as very free. I mean, it is free.
0: It is, and, and when the rhymes do occur, I mean, I think the closeness of the rhymes expands and contracts when it does rhyme, which is nice, because it's like time, I think, expanding and, and contracting. And when the rhymes mm-hmm. are, are close together, there's a, a nice little little bow or maybe we could say a pin, (laughs) um, in the rhythm, but also a kind of a, like a nervous energy, I think that's getting released maybe. I mean, that's always the case with rhyme anyway.
1: So there's almost something I think that about the earlier part of the stanza that seems frenetic and rushed, you know, do I dare? And do I dare time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair? Mm. Very Dr. Susie there. And then you get tripped up, then the hesitation comes in, the hesitant feel comes in with do I dare, so a very short line, mm. and then disturb the universe, in a minute there's time, and then we get a full line again at the end uh, with a nice rhyme.
0: Yeah, the speculation as he takes more time thinking what they might be saying and then self-reflecting and then catches himself with the rhyme at the end. I think you're right. I didn't yeah. realize how that in the earlier part of the stanza, it's almost like he's uh, winding himself up, even just the way that it begins, you know, and indeed there will be time. Like, yeah, you, you know, you kind of gain momentum and then it peters out and then he remembers himself at the end of the stanza.
1: It gives you a good sense of what seems to be his feeling that what he has to do is there. there's kind of has cosmic dimensions to it. You know, do I disturb the universe? You can see that the stakes are very high for him. And so, yes, if the proposal or whatever it is to this woman is of such monumental significance, then you can start to understand the hesitation and the indecision and understand that perhaps this is something that that has afflicted him for a very long time. Mm. If his hair is growing thin now. And I think again of this conflict between a more mature way of relating to people or or you know something we associate with civilization, you know, a, a possible marriage and certain institutions and and but above all, the idea of loving someone. So that's the universe that might be disturbed, and the the thing that might disturb it is the underlying baseness of the of the instinct that seems to be tangled up with the proposal, right? Mm -hmm. It's a proposal for marriage, perhaps predicated on love. We could speculate that the hesitation comes from his worry that it's, it's too tangled up with something that he's ashamed of, which is the sexual or the instinctual component. So Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to get so psychoanalytic about it, but
0: no, that's good. I mean, I think there's also a selfish quality that he is the the center of the universe or he himself mm-hmm. is the universe too. The bald spot in the middle of my hair, you know, later we'll see the, the head of John the Baptist. And I think of him as, as a sort of like a basketball head, <laughs> like, <a>, uh, <laughs> you know, that when he, when he's, his necktie is asserted by a simple pin and, and later he'll say that he's sprawling on a pin. I think right. of it as like a basketball spinning on a finger, you know, and, uh, and that he is the globe in a way. I mean, this whole thing is, I mean, to be honest, this is where I start to get really annoyed with Prufrock because <laughs> mm-hmm. his, uh, his p- part of this anxiety has to come from a kind of self-obsession that you think that everyone is talking about you. Mm-hmm. Really, no one cares about you. And no one's talking about you. But that um, anxiety, I think, springs from that kind of self-obsession and the idea that you are the universe or that the action that he's going to take will disturb the universe It has to come from a place of, uh, you know, the kind of selfishness that Bachelor is prone to.
1: Do I disturb the universe? What's he disturbing? Well, he's stirring up a little hornet's nest of women. And and how are they going to sting him? Well, they're going to say his hair is growing thin, (laughs) or his, his arms and legs are thin, right? So...
0: Which sounds true. Mm -hmm. Right. So these, (laughs)
1: But these very, you know, not pleasant to hear comments, of course, would he ever really actually hear them directly? He's just speculating that that's what they're saying about him behind his back. But what he's anxious about disturbing is the cognition of others or their, you know, he's worried about what other people think of him. And Mm -hmm. to disturb the universe is to stir up the thoughts of others. Mm. Let's just put it that way. There's an element of self-obsession in that. There's an element of, of paranoia even. I mean, it's something we're all familiar with, right? It's also so human to be concerned with what other people think of us. And part of you know, the anxiety of socializing right, is just the sense in which we are exposing ourselves, so to speak, to people. But in particular, it's this fear on his part of being pegged. Right. So in one sense, it's just about being called old. But I think as we will find out as we go on, the idea of him later on wriggling on a, on a pin is just that we're all characters. And that's to say, we all have these really strong character traits, personality traits in us that are fashioned by our upbringing and by everything that has happened to us. So there's a sort of residue of everything we've been through, including especially anything traumatic that shows up in our personality. Um, And it's something that's hard to buck, right? It's really hard to change your habits because of that. There's a a strong amount of tendency just to repetition. Um,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's another sense in which there's, there's time, right? There's plenty of time in the sense that there's plenty of repetition that goes on because of these traits we have. Think about what we do when we gossip or when we people watch or something like that. We sort of reduce people to their personalities and to something almost mechanical, right? So-and-so does, oh, they did that because they're they're just that type of person. You know, they're mm-hmm. such a nervous person and so they always do that nervous thing. So you, you have your particular behaviors, which to you are a matter of indecision or decision or reflection, you know, sort of these, of um, subjective inner experience. There's an objectifying element in what, goes on and in, in the way other people view that sort of thing the objectification happens in the sense that they reduce you to causal influences and mechanisms so it's not like should I you know to, to you the anxiety of should I marry this person or not blah 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 and someone might just say oh that's just Prufrock being Prufrock so he's being reduced he's being objectified and I think part of our anxiety about others, you know, our our fear of what they might think of us is not just that those thoughts might be negative, but that they're reductive and and that there's kind of a magical quality to them, right? That those thoughts can deprive us of our autonomy and our objectivity by pegging us, by pigeonholing us into some sort of character or some sort of this or that. I don't know. Does any of that make any sense? Sure, I think I, I wanted to, just to mention all that now, because I think it becomes, this idea gets returned to later on in the poem. You know, clothing itself, just to talk about his clothing, these are sort of trappings, right? And, and the, they represent the kinds of social trappings, which also trap, right? Trap us into right. various sorts of behaviors behaviors, and determine us. So this this also gets us back to the confinement and potential hypocrisy or fraudulence of social interaction um, and speaks to the larger possible problem of whether and possible source of proof, rocks, and decision, which is a worry about whether love itself is inevitably fraudulent. So mm. he's being the good guy, right? That's the, that's the, the preemptive absolution for this fraud is that I'm just being a good guy, but huh. being a good guy in a way means being a liar. If it means being in denial of the sexual <laughs> component or the aggressive component or whatever.
0: I like that. So I think this is a good place to end part one. Join us next time for part two of our discussion. Thanks, Wes.
1: Thanks, Aaron. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for The Partial Exam in Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following a regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week, Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails. And sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at
0: Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening.